So we've been in a series um, on Sunday mornings going through what's commonly known as the Sermon on the Mount. We've been looking at the teachings of Jesus. That's what this is uh, identified as. It's the longest ongoing teaching of Jesus that's been recorded in the New Testament. And uh, we've been doing this in the larger context of what we've been uh, going through as a church, what we have called the Year of Biblical Literacy, which is uh, kind of the way for our church family to read through the entire Bible. We see the Bible as not just auxiliary or it's just something to be done on the side, but it's really the, the bread and butter. It's the part of, it's the way that we know who God is. It's the way that we interact and understand what the heart of God is. So uh, we've been engaged within this year-long journey of reading through the Bible. I'll show you a little slide. It's kind of where we're at right now. Um, so if you've been with us from the beginning and you've been doing this, uh, right now, you should be somewhere right around the area of Romans, Romans chapter 3. If you are not there, if you're really far off, it's okay. There's, again, this is never a time to guilt or shame anybody. Um, I, I, you know, I've been pretty forthright about this. There's a season where I was like three or four books behind, which is pretty far. Um, but I, I have to say, I, I did get caught up. I'm not caught up right now, but I did get caught up because I've been just focusing and reading and trying to keep going with it. But again... Uh, you can always pick up, if you feel really, really far behind, just pick up right where we're at, which is Romans. You can start reading that tomorrow morning. It's, it's an amazing book. So that's what we've been doing. But now back into the Sermon on the Mount as we've been going through this. In fact, by the way, if you guys don't have Bibles, we have ushers that would love to get your Bibles. Um, you can raise your hand. They'll grab, get one over to you. Uh, you'll need a, a Bible for sure today. There's a lot of passages that we're going to be looking at. So if you guys don't have one, make sure you grab one and just be ready to go. So we're going to be looking at sub, the subject today. Of, of anxiety. Um, anybody stressed out? Anybody going through circumstances in life? You look stressed. I'm just kidding. Um, it's not very nice. I, I say that as I just got back from actually vacation, so I'm actually not stressed, though it, it can be stressful traveling. So anyways, um, if I'm a little bit hopped up and excited, that's why. So the point of the matter is, is that stress, anxiety is something obviously that we deal with as a culture and as a society. It's not new to us. It's not exclusive to us. Um, obviously, Jesus wrote this 2,000 years ago, or spoke this 2,000 years ago, and it was recorded for us. So this is an ongoing reality of being human. Like, we face this all the time. I think one of the things that we've identified, for the most part, in our modern world, even though we have all these modern means by which to deal with and to um, try to anesthetize ourselves to our anxieties, uh, we medicate ourselves, we take drugs, we drink, we are constantly on Facebook or are, you know, constantly watching stuff on Netflix, whatever the case is. And these are ways by which we try to um, drown out our otherwise stressed self. And what, what Jesus actually does is he wants to address the very heart of this. So he goes to the very heart and the very core of really some of the things that, are, that we're dealing with. And so this is this message today uh, that I'm going to be talking on, for the most part, it's just going to be a lot of scripture reading and just a few bits of comments on it, because I think the message itself is so straightforward. There's not a whole lot I need to really do, because it's just it's so simple. I think adding too much to it would actually subtract from the core essence of what the teaching is all about. So with that being said, what I want to do first, I want to just read the little section that we're going to be looking at. Just let it speak for itself, and then I'll pray, and then we'll begin to just make some observations of the text as we make our way through it. It's one of the things that we do here as a church. Um, we, we really believe in the importance of just taking the Bible and letting it speak for itself and reading it and letting the text, letting the ancient storytellers tell us their version, their story of who God is, and then our response is just to do the best that we can to understand it with the information that we have, and then ultimately to just orient our lives according to it, to abide by it, to live according to it, which is what the Bible describes as obedience. That's what it means to be a follower of Jesus, by the way. It's, it's we orient our lives to be obedient to Jesus. Um, one scholar described what it means to be a disciple or follower of Jesus is a long obedience in the same direction. Well, what about if I mess up? Well, of course you're going to mess up. You're human. You absolutely, I'll just, I could you know, predict that. Yes, you will mess up. No matter how hard you try, you will mess up. You will fail. We will all fail. But that in no way takes away or detracts from the reality that we are loved by this God that invites us continually to reorient, realign ourselves with him. That's, that's what our aim is. That's why we gather every single week on a Sunday. As, it's one of the reasons why we make this a weekly 
rhythm of our lives. It's one of the reasons why the writer of Hebrews says, don't forsake the gathering of the brethren together. And we do this. We don't just do this because we have nothing better to do for an hour and a half on our time on Sunday morning. I mean, honestly, like, there's, we live on the Central Coast. It's beautiful. We can go hike a mountain. We can go surfing. There's a lot of other amazing things that we can do. But there's a reason why we gather on this day, because it celebrates the resurrection, which happened on Sunday, and the reason why we gather weekly, rhythmically, because it's a way of reorienting ourselves around the story of the resurrection as a community. We do this as a community, not as individuals, but as a community, again, because it reminds us, one of those healthy reminders, I don't get to choose my family. I can choose my friends. I do not get to choose my family. That's a wake-up call for some of us, because we want to live in a world that's curated or catered to our liking. But family members, you don't get to choose, which means we are reminded we are part of the family that God has initiated, God began, God started, God is up to doing something. We are invited to be partakers of Jesus in the midst of this family. So there you go. All that's intro. It's free. You're welcome. Let's read the little story. So uh, Matthew chapter 6 Verse 25, I'm just going to read all the way down to the end of the chapter. You guys can follow along. In fact, how about we do this? Let's all stand up and let's uh, let's read. Is that cool? Cool? Show honor, respect to Jesus, to the words that have been preserved of him. Here's what he says. Verse 25, therefore, I tell you, don't be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, or about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow, nor reap, nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Which of you, by being anxious, can add one single hour to the span of your life? And why are you anxious about your clothing? Consider the lilies of the field. How they grow, they neither toil nor spin. And I tell you that even Solomon, in all of his glory, was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is today alive and tomorrow it's thrown into the oven, will not he much more clothe you? Oh, you of little faith. Therefore, don't be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things. And yet your heavenly Father knows that you have need of them. But... For you, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all of these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. This is God's word. And God, we just come before you as learners, which means, God, we want to not come to you with our own loaded understanding of what we think this text says, or nor do we want to come to you with this idea of assuming that we figured this out, but we want to come as humble learners. So Jesus, speak to us. You know our hearts. You know the trouble that we're going through. You know the anxieties that we face. You know the real life circumstances that for some of us, God, it's, it's legit, it's real, and it's heavy. And yet, Jesus, you still speak and address us no matter what level, what area, what place we find ourselves. So we just uh, submit our hearts and our minds to you and do your work in us, we pray. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Why don't you all grab a seat? And uh, we will begin to just unpack this little bit by little bit. So I want to begin by looking at this, this subject of, of anxiety or anxious and try to get a little bit of an understanding in terms of, you know, definition. What are we talking about here? So obviously, just like it says, I just kind of took this out of, I don't know, Webster's Dictionary or whatever. So anxious. Uh, I just thought it was kind of interesting to read. Um, to, to strangle. Like, I didn't, I didn't know that. It's interesting. Anxious. Doesn't that, isn't that what anxiety feels like? Have you ever had a, a, a panic attack? Doesn't it feel like that? Where you feel overwhelmingly filled with anxiety? Does not it feel like somebody's like strangling you? Man, what a great description of that. Um, distress, uh, number one, it says characterized by extreme uneasiness of mind or brooding fear about some contingency, worried, characterized by resulting from causing anxiety. So you get the idea. 
But this is, this is it. This is, this is the idea. This is the core of, for the most part. Uh, and we, as a Western culture and society, they're saying that there are so many more forms of stress and anxiety that we are plagued with than I think ever before. And I think probably one of the reasons for that is what they're observing is actually has to do with, did you know, did you know this? It's social media. Did you know that? Did you know that social media is killing you? I mean, seriously, like, did you know that? Social media actually may be not only a blessing to some degree because you're able to like, chat with people you normally wouldn't talk to, but do you realize that it also may be the very thing that's strangling you or the very means, or if you want to think of it this way, the gateway that's actually contributing to your anxieties? Do you realize that? And what they're saying, sociologists, is that uh, we are far more aware as to what we are not a part of. In other words, we are far more aware of the fact that our friends are posting these photos of amazing things that they're doing or drinking this incredible $8 latte with an incredible like, you know, avocado toast. And like, it's amazing. Look at that wallpaper in the background. What an amazing experience. They're, they're at. Look at me. I'm in bed watching reruns of The Office. What horrible life and existence am I, am I living right now? I can't believe this. I could be out doing something fantastic, and this is my existence. And, and that's, that's what they're saying is that this leads and contributes to this whole thing of like FOMO, you know, fear of missing out. I'm not there, therefore I must not matter. My life must not be important. My life must not be meaningful. And the fact of the matter is, is that we then bring these anxieties into ourselves and we begin to feel like, look, we can live without certain things, but what we cannot live without is, is meaning. When we feel as if we are nothing more than a particle on some small planet, in some small solar system, in some small galaxy, in some small neck of the universe, at some point, that's, I mean, these are the things that contribute to the fact that we are more stressed out, more worried than ever before. But when meaning gets breathed back into our understanding, back into our psyche, in fact, that word psyche is really important because Jesus actually uses the very Greek word psyche, which we'll look at in just a moment here. That when we begin to realize that we actually matter to God, that does something about reorienting our relationship to our present anxieties. This is what, what Jesus is addressing here. He's talking about. So I want to just look at an, a couple other ways in which that word anxiety, the, the very Greek word that's, that gets used there, um, appears at a couple other occasions throughout the New Testament. So here we, here we go for the journey. Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10, verse 38. It just simply says this. Now as they went out of the way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him and came into her house. This is that story, maybe you're familiar with Martha and Mary. And she had a sister named Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. So again, you get this picture, and then verse 40, but Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me alone to serve? Tell her to help me. Have you ever met her? <laughs> have, you ever met, have you ever met her like Martha? Right? It's, so this is the classic example of somebody, tell them to start doing more. Because look at me, I'm doing all this amazing stuff for you. I'm working hard, slavishly, but, but tell them to be part of the solution, just like I'm part of the solution. So it's this mentality of, again, looking at somebody else, observing their experience, what they're encountering right now is deeply troubling to you. It creates anxiety, and now you have this like stress moment. Again, the authors of the New Testament are amazing. They give us these little details, just enough information for us to formulate a, a, a picture of the narrative of what's happening here. And then it goes on to say, says, and then Jesus, verse 41, it says, but the Lord answered her and said, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, right? So Jesus' whole response here is like, look, you're, you're freaking out. You're stressing out. Calm down. It's okay. And then he goes on in the rest of the story. He says, look, Mary's actually chosen the better part. She is sitting with me. And again, this, there's a lot of think, ways in which this passage has been, you know, misconstrued, like, you should never work. You should always just sit. But that, that's definitely not the case. What's happening here, again, I'm not going to get into it, but the point of the matter is Jesus is addressing the issue with Martha, which she's just filled with anxiety. Jesus says, look, your sister's chosen the better part, so, so chill out. And then he goes on to say, 
um, as we continue in some of the ways in which this story, this particular word appears in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians chapter 7. I want you to turn there real quick. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Can you continue in your Bible going right? Um, 1 Corinthians 7, verse 30, 31. He goes on to say in verse 31, for this present form of the world is passing away. So there's a lot of speculation as to what in the world Paul might be referring to or talking about here. Um, some scholars believe that Paul felt as if the Roman Empire, the, where they lived within this empire, was under great uh, challenge and pressure and threat, maybe a famine or some other types of forms of um, unrest. And so Paul's saying, look, the, the world in which we're living in right now, we're in troublous times, challenges and hardship. And so I think the questions that were coming to Paul, again, we, we mentioned this a little bit a couple of weeks ago, that a lot of times when we read our Bibles, we're like listening to one end of a telephone call. And we're trying to make out, like, who's he talking to on the other end? And what is he saying? And you're trying to fill in the blanks as to what is not being heard on the other end. That's what these letters are like. So somebody wrote a letter to Paul addressing lots of questions. And Paul's writing back, point by point, addressing the questions back to them. So one of the questions, obviously, had to do with, you know, this world and the question, subject matter of, should we get married? Like, should we even get married? If things are going to get chaotic and stressful, and we're going to start going down tubes as a society and a culture, should we even bother getting married? That's kind of the question that seems to be being asked here. So Paul's response in this particular context is this, verse 32. He says, I want you to be free from anxieties. So Paul immediately just comes right in. Same Greek word, free from these anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, but how to please the Lord, but the married man or married person is anxious about worldly things and how to please his wife. So Again, what Paul is, and he's going to go on and address the whole subject matter of a wife as well, but here's, here's the point that I think that Paul is basically just making. That when you are not married, there is a, there's a, a, a desire, a determination, maybe even an, an angst that says, I want to please God. I want to serve God. I think Paul probably would have been in this category. But he's saying, look, if you're married, he's not saying this is a, a bad thing. He's just saying if you're married, like, like at some point, you have to reorient your life around that other person, right? By, by the way, FYI, if you do not do this, you will have a really bad marriage, right? Just uh, tuck that away. If you're not married, lots of you I know right now are probably not married. Just tuck that little bit of information away for a later point in your life. Uh, you have to be aware, be concerned about that other person. If you don't, you bring chaos. And I'll even add one other thing. Just because you are married does not solve the chaos. That's another freebie as well. You're welcome. It doesn't solve the chaos, nor does it remove your lust cravings, all right? Just some of you are like, man, I'm really lusty. How do I get rid of that? Oh, get married. Nope, that doesn't work either, all right? But what Paul is saying is that as you follow Jesus, uh, you have to orient your life to serving him. But even if you're married, there is a sense where you are giving yourself over to that other person. You're concerned about their well-being. Um, so, anyways, there you go. Uh, next one I want to take a look at is Philippians. This is the one that, that, that you probably have a coffee mug somewhere or your mom in your mom's cupboard somewhere that, that has this passage on it, right? Rejoice in the Lord always. you got to say rejoice. Um, or a t-shirt, right? Anybody a t-shirt? Yeah? A couple of you? Yeah, there you go. Anyways, I'm just joking. Um, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. And he goes on to say verse 6, do not be anxious about anything. So there's our word again. But in everything, by prayer, supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. This is an amazing passage. This is a passage that directly addresses our anxieties. Directly addresses them. So what Paul is obviously identifying is the fact that, yes, anxieties are real. Yes, they can cripple you. Yes, they may be a part or play into your experience in your life. However, there is a way to combat those things. There is a way in which you do not have to be a passive responder to them as if they are an outside tormentor over your soul. There's a way to combat it. This is, this is what's amazing. Um, this is something that I think is really crucial as a follower of Jesus. Um, and, and honestly, I'll, I'll just say this. I, I share this with you guys by way of experience. Uh, I've, I've experienced this over my many years of just simply being here, being a pastor. Like, being a pastor, uh, you, you're dealing with people's lives on a regular, constant basis. And just, just FYI, like, like, people's lives. Some people's lives are, are messy. There's a lot of really bad scenarios that oftentimes you end up having to deal with. And it can be stressful, aside from all sorts of other things. Again, without getting into it, but the point of the matter is that stress can be an overwhelming thing for me from time to time. And I've, I've experienced that. 
And I felt that crippling effect of anxiety. I felt that chest-crushing grip of anxiety upon me. I absolutely, I felt what it is like to not be able to sleep or to be woken up in the middle of the night at two in the morning and not be able to go back to sleep. I, I absolutely get it. I know what it's like. I've lived it. I've experienced it. But what I'm suggesting, what I'm saying, is, is I don't know how it particularly works, but I know it does. I know what Paul's advice that he gives here, I know what Jesus is saying actually works. I might not be able to tell you exactly how it works, but I can tell you that in the midst of anxiety, there are those types of soul grappling emotions that can bring you down to the mat. That Jesus, what he says, actually is a way to bring about a cessation or at least an alleviation of that sense of the acuteness of anxieties. This is what Paul is saying. is that Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, pray, seek God. It's very similar to what Jesus actually goes on to say. And he says, and as a result, the peace of God, the shalom of God. Shalom is the opposite, by the way, of, of chaos. It's the opposite of chaos. Chaos is the natural degradation of things. Chaos is what our world is in. Chaos is the state of everything that is not in alignment to Yahweh. Chaos is the opposite of shalom. Shalom is what God gives. Shalom is what God offers freely. And it's what Jesus is saying through his Apostle Paul. He says, in the peace of God, which surpasses understanding. Again, it's just kind of a crazy thing. Like, can you comprehend this peace? Apparently not so. That's what he's saying. He's like, you can't understand it because it surpasses. It's beyond understanding. But he goes on to say, this is the very thing that will be set like a warrior to guard your heart. Guard, right? Think of a warrior. Think of a Roman militaristic warrior standing on top of your heart, guarding the entrance of your soul in Christ Jesus. It's a powerful passage. All right, so there we go. That's just how the idea of anxiety or anxiousness begins to get played out in the New Testament. I'm going to move on to the next thing. I want to talk a little bit about in the passage. Again, we'll go back into reading the story. I want to just use the phrase gospel logic because what Jesus seems to do is, again, uh, the larger whole of what we're reading is what's called the Sermon on the Mount. And if you go back to chapter 4 in the book of Matthew, it says that Jesus went around everywhere preaching the gospel of the kingdom. So what I'm suggesting to you is that what we just read actually is part of the gospel, that this announcement. What does gospel mean? Gospel means good news. It's an announcement. Gospel is not good advice. It's not like, follow these five steps and you'll have a happier, better life. You know, that's, that's advice. The Bible does have advice, but this is, this is, this is an announcement. This is an announcement that God has done something on your behalf. God stood someplace where you could not stand. God carried something you could not carry. God did something for you that you could not do. That's, that's an announcement, by the way. God paid a price for you that you had not the ability to pay. Uh, that's, that's what you call good news. So if somebody comes to you and says, look, I just want to tell you, I paid off the remainder of the $300,000 mortgage on your house. It's Paid in full. You don't have to worry about the debt. You don't have to worry. It's done. Like that, that right there is it's like tweet worthy. Like that right there is like worth somehow announcing because that is good news. And what Jesus is about to tell us is all part of this bigger context of good news. So I want to think of it in this context of gospel logic. Listen, we'll just, again, we'll, we'll read through the passage again slowly make some comments, and then we'll just kind of summarize and wrap this whole thing up. So let's jump in. Jesus says this, is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Think about that question. Isn't life more than food and your body more than clothing? So the two words that he uses there is the word life is not life and then body. The word life, you guess, is the word psyche. It's literally the Greek word psyche. If you were to like take the actual Greek word and just use it in English, it's, it's the same, psyche, psychology, you get the idea. It's the idea of, of who you are, the substance of who you are. There's a lot of ways in which you can unpack this and think about this. So what he's, he's literally addressing your psyche. Isn't your psyche, isn't your well-being, isn't the way that you live, how you think, and are a cognitive 
reasoning human being is, isn't, isn't this far more than all these other things? And what about your body? It's a word that he uses there, soma, your actual physicality. Um, it, aren't you greater than all these other things? And again, we would all assume, of, of course we are, because there are, you know, what, what makes this really cuts to the very core of what, what makes a human a human, right? Like what makes, what, what dignifies you? Is it the type of clothing you have? Is it the type of food you have? I eat caviar. Like, who, who cares what you eat? Like, it doesn't matter if you eat caviar or plantain chips. Like, it doesn't matter. Like, that's not how and what dignifies you as a human being. So life, you know, obviously we can rationalize, is definitely far more than what you eat or what you put on your, put on your body. And what Jesus is doing in sort of this gospel logic is the good news. Look, the fact of the matter is, if you grasp this, if you receive the truth, the wisdom that Jesus is offering, this actually can liberate you and free you. Because I think for the most part, what marketing and advertising oftentimes tells us is that no, your, your, your well-being and your body is what's most important to you. So take care of it, work out, put on makeup, make yourself look good. And again, there's, no, there's nothing wrong with putting on makeup. If the house needs painting, paint it. But the point of the matter is, there's nothing wrong with this stuff. But when these things become the very things that control and dictate our lives and our well-being, that's when we begin to move into this realm of anxiety. And Jesus is saying, look, slow down. Your life, the very essence, the core of who you are, it matters. And it's beyond what you eat, beyond what you put on, and beyond just all these other external realities. He goes on to say, and I'll, I'll kind of put in this context, he begins to reason with them uh, from the lesser to the greater, meaning he's going to begin kind of on the low end of the totem pole or the bottom of the food chain. He's going to begin to work his way all the way up to the top of who you are. Listen, listen to how he does this. Verse uh, 26. Go ahead and follow along. We'll read it. He says, look at the birds of the air. So he's telling us to do something. So again, when Jesus says do something, and again, obviously we're inside of a building, so if you're outside, if you're living in his original audience, that was hearing this, imagine, um, it's where Jesus was doing this. There's all sorts of discussion and debate as to exactly where this was at, but we can get somewhat of an idea as to where it's at. It's, it's probably somewhere within the region of the Sea of Galilee, which is absolutely pristine and beautiful. I wish I had a photo of it, which I don't. Um, I just show you what it looks like. I've been there several times, and literally you can go there today, and there's, there's not noise pollution. There's, there's not a Starbucks there, praise Jesus. There's not a Walmart. There's nothing like that. It's absolutely pristine. In fact, you can sit there and think, this is exactly what it was like 2,000 years ago. Like, it hasn't changed. And when Jesus says, okay, look at the birds up there, you, you can just look around. Like, there's, there's a bird. There's something flying. There's, some, there's, a, there's a lily. There's all, you can look at these things. What Jesus is saying, look at the birds of the air. They don't sow. They don't reap. Again, they're not planting crops. They're not reaping. They're not doing all the stuff that we typically do. And yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than them? So the lesser is, is a bird. So apparently, Jesus is saying, look, look at the birds. Like, they're taken care of. They've always got food. And can you, you can go down the, the beach. I heard Pismo Pier just open up yesterday. That's cool. Um, and, and I know, I, even though I wasn't there, my, my assumption would be there's probably a lot of seagulls, right? Because wherever there's, like, nasty leftover french fries, there's always a massive amount of seagulls, right? And, and, and they, they feast. They're literally having, like, hometown buffet on Pismo Pier because of human beings leaving their trash around. And, and yet, somehow... Uh, they're being provided for. They're being taken care of. And yet, what Jesus is saying is that, look, if even these birds, which are totally insignificant, like nobody goes around, for the most part, I mean, I'm sure some people do, but nobody like, goes around and like names a bird as a pet. Right? But they're just insignificant to us. And what he's saying is that if this insignificant animal is taken care of by God, how much more? You who bear his image, you who are his child by creation how much more is he going to take care of you so it's an invitation that jesus is making he goes on to say next verse verse 27 and which of you by being anxious can even add one single hour to the span of your life so unpack that just think about that so 
by worrying, so again, this is rationalized real quick. So when you worry, how much does worrying help you out in that circumstance? I mean, just realistically, like, like if you're in the midst of worrying right now, this little exercise will do absolutely nothing for you because when you are anxious, like no amount of reasoning and rationing oftentimes really is effective. And, and again, I, I speak that from like many moments in my life where my wife is sitting there with me just like, well, Brian, think about this. And I'm just like, all I can do right now is feel. I, all I can feel. Like I can't think. Like maybe tomorrow morning after a long nap, I'll be able to think again. But right now all I can do is feel. But... This is, again, part of gospel reasoning, what Jesus is suggesting. Which of you, by worrying, by anxiety, can actually add or change or modify your circumstances? In other words, this is basically an invitation from Jesus to say, look, no amount of worrying can actually modify or change your present circumstance. So, therefore, we know the effects and the consequences of worrying and anxiety. I mean, there's all sorts of health Studies that have been done recently that show that worrying and anxiety are so, so bad for your health on a physical level. We know that in mental health at that level as well. We we know this now. It's one of the reasons why I think even in a very secular sense, meaning a non-Christian way, all sorts of big major corporations are introducing what they would call like mindfulness. You You guys heard of that? You know, like being mindful. Let's take a moment to meditate, to just pause, to stop, to censor all forms of Eastern mysticism and whatnot kind of being introduced even into a secular work- workplace because what they're basically saying, these exercises are, are intended, at least in theory, to help you to pull away from stress and anxiety to basically become a healthier version of, of you. So really all that to me, in my opinion, is just simply doing, is just confirming what Jesus said 2,000 years ago. Like, like, yes, anxiety is really bad for you, and no amount of worrying or stressful activity will actually even change the condition or the circumstance which you're, you're in. So, so listen, this is really fascinating to me. A couple of weeks ago, as I was reading through this and studying this, I, I stumbled across this. I'll share it with you. It's, it's kind of cool. So Jesus says, which of you by being anxious can even add a single span to your life? That, that particular word where it says span of your life, does anybody else have any other translation of that? Anybody? Any other translation? You say it out loud. Add a cubit to your stature. Anything different than a cubit to your stature? Anybody? That's all we have. Cubit to her stature and span to his life. Anybody else? No. What? Moment. Okay. So very variations of this. Now the particular Greek word that's used there is, is really an interesting one because it gets um, added uh, throughout the New Testament in a lot of different variety of ways. I'll, I'll, I'll read you a couple of those. So next passage, I just want to read this to you. It's Luke Chapter 19, verses 1 through 3. Luke 19. This is an interesting one. It says, And when Jesus entered Jericho, there was a guy named Zacchaeus. Okay? We're going to tell you a little story about this guy named Zacchaeus. Um, what we know, again, if you're listening to the story, you're just paying attention, um, with any good story, you just got to listen to the details. Because any good storyteller is setting you up for about what's to happen. So they're going to give you these little details about the characters, character formation. So they're giving you a little bit of character formation about this guy by the name of Zacchaeus. It says this, he was a chief tax collector. So first thing we know about him, he worked for the bad guys. He worked for the government. Nobody likes tax collectors, right? That's your job, sorry. Um, he was also rich. So obviously, which is an implication, he gets rich off of collecting taxes. You know, a lot of times they would take a little bit higher than what their pay cut was, and so they were stealing, right? So they're thieves. And on top of that, a little bit later in the text, we're actually told that Zacchaeus, right, was a wee little man. He was a short dude, right? Short dude. And so Zacchaeus, being a short, rich dude that worked for the bad guys, he, what he, the, the, the point of tension in the story is he really wants to see Jesus. But again, in the story we're told, and he was seeking to see Jesus on account of the crowd. So another little bit of detail we're told about the story. He's a short dude, but... There's a lot of people in the audience, and he cannot see Jesus. So there's a short, rich dude who um, wants to see Jesus. What does he do? He climbs up in a tree to see Jesus. And still, Jesus then sees him and says, come on down, Zacchaeus. You know the story. Jesus says, I want to come over to your house for dinner. But the point of the matter is, is that blew my mind, is that the phrase that's used to describe him, it says, because he is small in stature. So again, the, the point of tension in the story is the reason why he can't see Jesus, the reason why he can't get in connection with Jesus is because of his smallness in stature. It's the same passage where he says, which one of you by worrying can add anything to your stature? 
So Zacchaeus, he's got a problem. He wants to see Jesus, but he can't eat small stature. But what happens? Well, God overcompensates for his inability. Jesus calls him down. It doesn't matter if he's short in stature. It doesn't matter if he is insufficient in terms of what he needs or what is needed to be able to be in connection with Jesus. Jesus already knows this. Jesus has already made provisions. Jesus has already invited himself over to Zacchaeus' house. You've got to love that. I mean, Jesus inviting himself over to your house for a meal. How rad is that? So what we see here is that within the case of Zacchaeus, didn't really matter. Jesus took care of him nonetheless. Next story. Hebrews chapter 11, verses 11 through 12. Just listen to this one. This is another great story. By faith, Sarah, so we're taken all the way back into the very Old Testament, which is around chapter 10 of the Bible, Genesis chapter 10, somewhere around there. But Hebrews chapter 11, or uh, chapter 12, somewhere around there. Hebrews chapter 11, we're told, by faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age. That phrase, past the age, is the exact same Greek word, small in stature. Exact same word. So you can understand, this is not an easy Greek word to translate. It's why we see it used in all these variety of ways. But one thing that's consistent throughout is that there is a deficit. You get that, right? There's something that is needed, but is not there, and it's requiring some sort of major step on behalf of God to overcompensate or compensate for the, the lack. You, you follow this? In this particular case, we're told, since she considered him faithful who uh, had promised. Verse 12 says, Therefore, from one man and uh, as him, as good as dead, they were born descendants, as many as the stars of heaven, as many as innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. So again, in this particular context, what's really fascinating to me is that what we see is that Sarah could not conceive. She was short in stature. But what she does do, she trusts the one who calls her. And God takes care of her. One final one, and we'll move on to the last idea or last movement within this text. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 13. I love this. It says, and then he gives apostles and prophets and evangelists and shepherds and teachers. This is God giving these gifts to the church, and there's a distinct reason for that. Again, one of the things we like to say here, just kind of by way of a tangent, um, like my job here is not to do the work of the ministry. Like, like I just need you to know that. That's not how this church works. My job, I have a role here. My role is to equip you guys, to equip the saints. The, the word saint, by the way, I don't, I don't particularly like that word. The word saint literally comes from the Greek word holy ones. To equip the holy ones. Think about that. I don't know how you think of the word saint, and if you have ideas in your minds that are not in sync with Scripture, and just think of it as holy ones. If you are in Christ, you are a holy one. You are one that has been devoted, dedicated, remade, reoriented, reshaped by Jesus. And the role of leaders in the church is not to do the work of the ministry, but to train the holy ones so that they can do the work of the ministry. That's what he goes on to say. For the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to full, mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So here's what Paul is basically bringing us into, this incredible mystery, that no matter what type of deficiencies you currently have, want to know where everything in the universe is going, want to know where your life is heading, All right, this is a little bit of a peeling back of the future veil for you to look into the future. Like, this is kind of like one of those wormhole passages, right? It's, it's transporting you into the future to look at who you will be. And really, in the most mysterious way, who you, you've already become, but are being shaped into this as we go. Here's what he says. You are going to measure the full measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So, at some point, all that is lacking right now in your life will be complete to the full measure of the stature. And he even adds this little phrase at the end. The measurement of, the fulfillment of Christ himself. Think about that. Like this, this is literally one of those like mind-blowing realities. That right now, if you are a follower of Jesus, if you have devoted, if your loyalties of your heart are to the king who gave himself for you, I don't care how deficient, how much you feel like you lack, how much you think you don't have, how much anxieties you have because of either what you don't have or because of what you wish you had that you don't have, no matter or how much 
anxieties you have because of the things that you do have. A diagnosis that's frightening or a circumstance that's horrific. It doesn't matter. At some point, Jesus is making up for all of those deficiencies and we will be accounted a full measure according to Jesus. It's just, again, amazing stuff. Okay, let's, let's keep going on. If you want to put it this way, I kind of, if you like little slogans, so here you go. Here, you can take your little like, photo of this. Your limitations are God's opportunities. All right, that's it. Like, your limitations are God's opportunities. Like, this is the good news. It doesn't matter how much you are limited or how much you don't have or how much you do have by way of anxieties and stress and worries, that these become this opportunity for God to do something on your behalf. In the case of Zacchaeus, he was short. He couldn't see Jesus, but that didn't limit him or hinder him from ultimately being able to see Jesus because Jesus had already gone before and called him down. Sarah, who could not have a kid because she was really old, she did not measure up. Jesus, God, intervened and gave her the very gift and the desire of her heart, fulfilling his promises, because this is what God does. Your limitations are God's opportunities. So let's wrap this up. Verse 28, just read through this. He says, and why are you anxious about your clothing? It's a good question. Why? I think a lot of times, if we were to go deeper, our clothing is not just something we put on our body. It's something to create a new identity. It's a fig leaf. If you really want to get down to it, it's a fig leaf. It's an attempt to make myself more beautiful or more handsome or more appealing or more likable. So, so why do we worry about this stuff? Because fundamentally, at the core of who we are, we haven't fully believed the identity that we've been given. We, we, we feel like it's not enough. We feel like we don't measure up to those that are around us. So, so why do we care and worry about what we are going to put on? Again, address the root and then the fruit, anxiety for not knowing what you're going to wear, will begin to be identified and, and dealt with and unmasked, really, unmasked for what it is. And Jesus will then begin to reorient your life. Why are you anxious about your clothing? And then he goes on to say again, consider, think about the lilies of the field. They neither grow they need to toil or spin. Toil or spin. When was the last time you used that? Again, think about it this way. All right, when we like the dilemma of us getting new clothes. What, what do we got to do? Like we either go online, Amazon, or like my, my, my daughters that go to like the, the bins, which you know you, you go get like really like lots of clothes for really really cheap, which is awesome. They're really really gifted. They have like the gift of bin shopping at thrift stores. It's awesome. Like it's, I think it is a spiritual gift. All right, I'm done with that. Um, or or we go to stores downtown. Back in that day, buying clothes? Like, think of the process it would take to go get clothes for your body. It's one of the re- I mean, there is a reason why people way back when, 2,000 years ago, they like, had one cloak. Like, you might call it European today, but the pa- fact of the matter is that back in that day, that's just the way it was. It's the way people, they didn't have a lot of money. They didn't have the ability to have a lot or a big wardrobe of clothes because of the inability of being able to get these things. And Jesus is saying to these people that had this incredible gap between them and the clothing that they're going to put on. He says, don't, don't worry about it. I'll take care of you. He goes on to say, consider the lilies of the field, how they, they neither toil or spin. Yet I tell you that even Solomon, in all of his glory, was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown in the oven. In other words, you think about grass, it's just transient. It doesn't last for very long, right? We, we know that firsthand, right? San Luis Obispo. Um, for like three months, we have everything's green. It's amazing. There's a step out there. It's called grass. And for the rest of the year, like it's just, it's, I remember one time I described it as brown and I had someone like correct me here, you know, live, they are longer on the central coast. And they're, they're like, it's not brown. It's golden. Like, oh, sorry. Golden. All right. It's golden. All right. Whatever it is, whatever it is, it's, it's, it does not look a lie. All right. That's the fact. And what Jesus is saying, like grass, it's here today, gone tomorrow. It's like, it, it's like the bottom of the food chain unless you're a cow. But the fact of the matter is, he says, how much more of value are you than, than even that? God knows what your needs are. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is today here, and then tomorrow's thrown in the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? I don't know how you read that phrase. I think the way our English translations can read that, it, it, to me it sounds a little bit harsh, like you of little 
faith. This is one of the problems that we have with reading our Bibles, is that we, it's unlike a video where you can actually see a person's like, smile or whatever intention on their face. I don't know how you read this, and I think maybe how you think of Jesus is going to um, play into the narrative of how you hear him saying, oh, you of little faith. If you think of Jesus as an angry landlord in which you live on his property and he's mad at you all the time, you're going to hear him say, like, what's wrong with you? Little faith, right? If you think of Jesus as loving, as compassionate, I think you'll probably hear a little laughter in his voice, like, you have little faith. Don't you know? God cares about you. It's an invitation. It says, therefore, don't be anxious, verse 31, saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things. So he makes an allusion to the Gentiles. This is uh, the actual Greek word there. can be translated as nations. This is not a derogatory term. He's not saying those evil, wicked, pagan, Gentile people over there. He's saying the nations, the rest of the nations. And again, this actually taps into an ancient Hebrew storyline out of Deuteronomy, things like 32 or 34, which actually taps into another ancient storyline in the book of Genesis, where God calls all the nations, and all the nations, for the most part, they turn from God at the Tower of Babel. And in the book of Deuteronomy, it tells us that God actually disinherits the nations and calls Israel to be his people. This is literally language that Jesus is borrowing from the ancient storyline of Israel. He's saying, but you, people of the story, people of Abraham, people that have been inherited by God, you have a father who loves you. Trust him. And he goes on to say, in summary, he says, therefore, or verse 33, but seek first the kingdom of God, his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, don't be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow is anxious for itself, sufficient is the day for its own trouble. In other words, look, tomorrow will have its own issues for you to deal with, right? So, so cheer up, tomorrow might be worse. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um, it's, and Jesus basically is like, look, tomorrow, yes, it could be worse, but... If you hold on to this truth, you have a God that loves you. He'll be with you. And this is the good news. Look, this brings us right back to the very story of who Jesus is himself. This is Yahweh, your creator, come among us to experience everything that we as human beings have ever experienced. I mean, from the beginning of going through the birth canal of a mother, a teenage woman, through soiling his diaper, through experiencing hunger pains. I mean, I don't know how you think about Jesus. I hope it reserves categories and space for you to think of him just like this, because this is exactly what Yahweh became. He knows what it's like to suffer. He knows what it's like to be talked about negatively. He knows what it's like to be slandered or to be offended, or to have people gossip about him, or to be betrayed. He gets it. He knows what it's like to go without. He knows what it's like to even pray to God and saying, God, will you do this? And the Father says, no, there's no other way. This is the path forward. He gets it. So the invitation for you and I is to see what this thing called the kingdom of God is. That we have a God that steps into our world and says, I will reshape your life. What is the kingdom? I use this, I mentioned this a couple weeks ago. In short, the kingdom of God is God's reign, God's orienting this whole universe, this whole world according to himself. What does it look like throughout the Gospels? We see at least these nine things. Number one, it looks like preaching the Gospel, teaching the way of the Gospel, healing the sick. It's all this good news, casting out demons or these influences or spirits. It's eating with people from, who are far from God, doing justice, praying, peacemaking, speaking, and or standing up uh, prophetically, if you want to think of that way, in the, in the, in the pathway of the prophets uh, to religious and political corruption. This, these are all the things of the kingdom of God. So I think what the invitation of Jesus is, is to say, seek first the things that have to do with God's new order that's being birthed on this planet. And Jesus says, God will take care of you. That doesn't mean that you're going to have a suffering-free life. Please understand that. It's not at all what this is saying. But what it is saying is that when you go through challenges and hardships, and anxiety becomes the default emotion you go to, there's a way out. 
This is an invitation. So I don't know where you're at. I don't know what type of circumstances have brought you here this morning. My hope would be, would be that you would see and hear the words of Jesus, who loves you, who stepped into this world to bear your sin, your shame, the consequences of our distrust to God, and to be so convinced of his loving act on our behalf for us that we would completely switch loyalties from every other sphere of life to becoming loyalists of King Jesus. That's the invitation. So I don't know where you're at, but we're going to have a time to just respond. As we go to the cup, as we go to the bread, as we think about what Jesus has done for us, as we worship, as we pray, as we sing, how about we all respond and turn to him? So let's all stand now. I'm going to pray. Let's worship him. Let's sing. Let's partake of the communion together as a family. And let's be reminded of the incredible love that God has put on display for us through Jesus. So, Jesus, thank you for who you are, for what you've done for us. God, thank you that we can actually trust you with our lives, with our anxieties, with our fears, with our worries, and even with our sins and our defilement, the things that we're ashamed of, the things that we don't even want to speak because we feel so dirty. We thank you, God, that we can even give those things to you knowing that you won't shame us. You actually will carry our shame and bear our consequences and lift our anxieties and in their place, the peace of God, which passes understanding, will replace our chaos with shalom. So we surrender, we submit to you right now as we sing. So as we worship, um, if you're here and you need prayer for anything that's going on in your life, um, I'll be up in the front. We'll have some leaders up in the front as well. We'd just love to pray with you. We have some rugs in the front if you just want to do business before God. Get on your knees, worship, whatever. Again, this is an invitation for you to actually respond to this God that has initiated his love for you by way of responding in repentance, turning from those things, and faith turning to the one who loves you. Respond.